Welcome to podcast number 31 for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net. Many of you would be familiar with Bletchley Park in the UK and its involvement in the Allied victory in World War II. Canberra author David Dufty joins us to tell us about Australia's own version of Bletchley Park and the role it played towards victory in the Pacific War. Many thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Many of our listeners obviously would have heard about Bletchley Park in the United Kingdom and the role that Bletchley Park made uh, during World War II, but not of the story told in your book about the Australian version of Bletchley Park. And your book was called The Secret Codebreakers of Central Bureau and how Australia's signals intelligence network helped win the Pacific War. Can you start off, please, by explaining to us what signals intelligence is? Sure. So signals intelligence is studying uh, signals. Uh, okay, so signals is basically communication or information um, um, being you know, emanating from, from the enemy. Uh, and particularly, so there are two kinds of signals intelligence that was really employed uh, in a big way in the Second World War uh, in Australia. One is code breaking. So signals intelligence is sort of code breaking plus other stuff, if you like. Uh, so, the, so there was a lot of code breaking going on, but there's also what they called back then traffic analysis. Uh, and so it goes by other names now, uh, which is where you're studying the patterns of data, you know, so, so metadata, if you like. You don't actually care what the message is. You just want to know that looking at who's communicating with who and what the patterns of, uh, you know, the flow of messages is looking like. So that's signals intelligence. And then there, there are other kinds of signals intelligence, but those are the two main ones that I talk about in the book because they were the two main ones going on uh, in Australia. Can you summarise for us how... Australia's Signals Intelligence Network helped win the Pacific War? Sure. Um, basically, Australia, at the start of the war, well, uh, to answer your question directly, by, by, by providing great intelligence to uh, the Allied commanders uh, in the southwest Pacific, particularly MacArthur, about what was going on and what the Japanese uh, were doing. Uh, what had happened, really, at the start of the war, Australia had virtually... Uh, no capacity in this space. Uh, we had one little unit called for Special Wireless Section, which was um, listening to German radio messages in uh, Greece and in Crete. I don't know why it was called number four. There was only one of them. And it was uh, just a unit of about, I think, uh, it was less than 100. Uh, and they, when the war broke out in the Pacific, they were pulled back and they were basically the foundation for Australian signals intelligence uh, in the Pacific, and they they were trained initially by the British when they were over in Crete and Greece, or over in Greece in particular. And then when they were brought back to then they were brought back to Australia because MacArthur, when he came back when he came to Australia, so I don't know if you're familiar with this, but essentially the Japanese swept through Asia and the Pacific, and it was a shambles in the Philippines. MacArthur had to escape with his family to Australia. And he came here and he was essentially worshipped as this military hero. They had, this was even before the war. He was a very well-known figure. And he, uh, he said, one of the first things he said was, look, I, I want to build my own 
I want to build a co-breaking centre, a signals intelligence centre. And, and our Prime Minister Curtin said, OK, sure. So they had this unit from Crete uh, and they had a couple of other people floating around, some code breakers. We had Eric Nave, who was Australia's first code breaker, who had been, a, who was actually working for the British, happened to be back here on sick leave. They put them all together and they combined them with uh, Americans. They brought some American experts over and they built up this, this code breaking and signals intelligence operation. So how did they help win? Well, they were studying, they got really good at studying as I was saying, traffic analysis, they were studying the ebb and flow of messages and they figured out, you know, they were watching Army messages versus Army Air Force messages and, and, and figuring out where, using the, the radio messages they were picking up to figure out where the Japanese were and where they were not. And that was a really important part of, uh, played a really important part in MacArthur's strategy. And the unit was at first based out of Melbourne? Yeah, it was. So they so they pulled these guys back out of out of the Middle East, and so they assembled what uh, this unit called Central Bureau. And the reason they called it that was it was a really boring name that if anybody overheard hub or whatever, they wouldn't pay any attention to. They wanted something in, innocuous and inconspicuous. Uh, and so it was based in Melbourne for a few months, and then they moved them. Well, essentially, look, MacArthur, General MacArthur loved these guys. Loved this. It was an Australian American conglomeration. And everywhere he went, he insisted they come. So when MacArthur moved, you know, it's like Australia was not going to get invaded after all. MacArthur moved north to Brisbane, Central Bureau, packed up and went to Brisbane. MacArthur went to the Philippines, with him, went to, with him to the Philippines. They, they went wherever MacArthur went, essentially. Uh, so, yeah, but they started in Melbourne. And they were looking at, um, they were looking at J- Japanese, mess- all kinds of Japanese messages. The only ones they weren't doing were the high-level Japanese Navy messages um, that was given across to a separate organisation called uh, Fleet Radio Unit Melbourne, or FRUML, which was run by the Americans, but also had Australians in it. So that was the division in terms of code breaking. When you talk about the division, one thing that struck me uh, during the course of the book in terms of the of the fragmentation of effort along service lines. So in is Central Bureau was predominantly uh, Army. Uh, and and uh, and Fromell was predominantly army and air force. Army and air force, and Fromell was was predominantly yeah. navy. But there were issues between the units as well. Is that right? Yeah. So okay, the history was there was this code breaking unit in the Philippines who also were evacuated by submarine. Like literally, a submarine emerged at night. In uh, this, they were on uh, the island of Corregidor. And they and they kind of made their way out to in Manila Bay to this submarine and escaped to Australia. And the guy who was running that was a uh, an American Navy guy called Rudy Fabian. And when they when they got together in Melbourne and said, "Look, MacArthur wants us to do this all this code breaking stuff together. It's sort of an international operation: British, Australian, American." And he didn't want to, and all the different services and Rudy Fabian. He didn't want to, he didn't expect to be in Australia. He was a Navy guy, an American Navy guy. He didn't want to work with Australians. He didn't want to work with British. But above all, he did not want to work with the US Army. So they said, okay, he just wanted to do Navy codes and he wanted to do it on his own. And he was really good. So they said, okay. So he got his and they had that. These guys were in a flat block of flats in Melbourne on St Kilda Road. And he, was, he was put there with a bunch of, he had a lot of Australian women helping him as sort of uh, administrative support uh, and then everybody else, the 
US Army, Australian Army, Australian uh, Air Force, they all, all the other codes, except the ones Rudy Fabian was working on. So that was the division. Central Bureau basically did everything else. And your book essentially covers the formation of Central Bureau, the movement of the Bureau following uh, MacArthur's headquarters up to Brisbane and eventually offshore, etc. And also when reading the book, what struck me was some of the locations and buildings in Australia that still exist today that played a huge role in the SIGINT World War II history. Can you highlight a few of them for us? Sure. But before I do, I just want to make a comment about my book. I mean, I know my book's titled The Secret K-Breakers of the Central Bureau. That was a sort of an editorial choice that my publisher wanted to, he wanted to be sort of focused. But the reality is I do cover the, the frontal story of Rudy Fabian's operation. I think I have several chapters about them as well. So it's not just, it, it's mostly about Central Bureau. But I think if you, if you want a good coverage and you also want to learn about frontal, I talk about that quite a lot too. Mm. I don't sort of go, oh, that's not um, that's not part of my my book because it totally is. Um, but yeah, so yeah, a lot of interesting, a lot, lot of uh, old buildings in Australia are really involved. So there's this block of flats called Monterey Flats on um, St Kilda Road in Melbourne, and they're still there. I've been there. They're nothing flash, but um, they're pretty old because they were actually requisitioned uh, during at the start of the war. Um, to, to put all these co-breaking people into uh, and all the Americans and also Australians. And, and, and also, because Australia, when I said Australia didn't have much co-breaking capacity, we did have some, like the army had gotten together a bunch of professors and said to them in Sydney and said, including a mathematics professor, a brilliant guy called Professor Roon, and said, do you guys just want to start a co-breaking club by any chance? This is before the war, right? So they, they encouraged them and then they were feeding them actual code messages to practice on but so those those guys were all at monterey helping rudy fabian and the americans and then there was um down the road from them was uh they were in a big old house central bureau was in a big old house called cranley which has since been demolished unfortunately Mm. and then they moved up to brisbane and they were in a in another house that had been sort of commandeered uh at 21 henry street in ascot uh, called uh, Narambla. So that's probably the most famous building for Australian code, but it's, it's still, these, it's back in private hands, um, but it's, uh, that was where Central Bureau was really, really um, based for most of the war. So in Brisbane, there's a, the uh, Ascot Fire Station, they had the first IBMs because the Americans brought in all of these IBM machines. So to, to process, everything was being done by pencil and paper. And the Americans are like, we, we actually, we've been working back in America on this way of using, they were just sort of collating machines at the time. But we, we've kind of adapted collating machines uh, and they were sort of programming them uh, to, to process everything quicker. So they were based in the fire, they were set up in the fire station. Yeah, that's got fire station, which yeah. I, I, it's a, such a pity because that building is actually not used. It's just, I, I, I went by it, I think a year or so ago, it's just, sort of derelict now and it would be such a great thing to turn into a museum of mm. you know co-breaking and signals intelligence and here's where the first computers were used in australia to to break japanese codes another maybe. another location in, in in melbourne because obviously i'm based in melbourne was it park orchards i think another place yep. that you wrote about yeah there was a there, that that was uh what did they have going at that, that was uh, an, uh they had Interception going on at Park Orchards. 
Um, so that was for the oh, an inter- that was an intercept site uh, for listening into long range uh, radio signals, and also I'm trying to remember what else they did. I think they might have also been doing some of the diplomatic messages. There were a lot of places around Melbourne. There was quite an elaborate setup in Melbourne. Uh, so you had um, so there was an army. Okay, so there was an army intercept site at Park Orchards. And so that's where actually the Australian Special Wireless Group was formed. Uh, and then they were, they were relocated. Further north of, uh, up near the, the border, the New South Wales border, at um, a big army camp called Bone Gilla, they had a lot of the training for the special signal, special wireless uh, units. So they were all trained at Bone Gilla. And then they were deployed all across Australia. And there was uh, there was an all women's unit, by the way, that went to all women went to Perth, and they were listening into the they they, they were basically listening into messages from the, because the, the the Japanese occupied Singapore. They were listening to everything coming in there out of Singapore. Yeah. Basically, the the Singaporean um, headquarters there, um, up, right across uh, the northern Australia um, near Darwin, Townsville. Uh, it was a really cool thing in Townsville where they had this. Um, secret base they, they went up to townsville they weren't allowed to talk to other people in townsville all the people working on this and they uh they had a secret bunker that was painted to look like a farmhouse and they also in all across the pacific so what started with just this handful of guys ended up being four thousand people spread across the pacific because the problem with army messages is you can't you can't um navy messages were fine they could set up like big arrays in melbourne or wherever and they could listen to messages from you know hundreds of miles away or thousands but with army messages a lot of these were low power messages and you needed to get intercept units really close and this was one of the kind of crying shames of the war really was that there were all these guys that were working around the clock in the jungles of new guinea and remote islands with headphones on listening to not even Morse code, but Japanese Morse code, encrypted Japanese Morse code, writing it down with pencil and paper, sitting in a little tent with mosquitoes, 24 hours a day they manned these, these, these things, and then they'd bundle up these sites, and then they'd bundle up all the messages into, into bags, send them off to Central Bureau, mm-hmm. or they'd be processed by the code breakers. And so that's dedication. You know, They did this for years. They did this for the entire war. Some of them got very sick, some of them died, um, and it was really, really gruelling work. And they never, because it was secret, they never really got the credit for what they did. Mm. They were sort of ignored. And one guy who was even on, on, on in the Philippines, you know, and he got, he was, he had injuries, like literally injuries from, from the severe illnesses that he'd gotten uh, from working in these harsh hazardous conditions. And he went to march in, a, in an Anzac Day march. And what unit were you in? Well, nobody had heard of Central Bureau. Nobody had heard of one special wireless unit, one wireless unit. And so they mocked him as having been one of the guys who just sort of stayed home and had a cushy life. And he never went back. Mm-hmm. He never went back to Anzac Day. He just watched it on his TV. So they didn't get the recognition they deserved. And they did a really important thing. And uh, that's one of the reasons. I, that was really important to me when I was writing this book. I wanted... I wanted the world to know about these guys. I wanted them to know, I wanted people to know what these people, not just guys, but women too, what they did and the commitment they had and the role they played. Where did you get the inspiration to write the book? 
Well, as I was saying, you know, I, I wanted I wanted people to know about the important role these guys did. But I, I suppose the inspiration, the original idea, came from a newspaper article. This was back in I think oh, it was a while ago now, and I read a, an article in the paper. It must have been about 2011. Um, it was a feature article called Spy Twins, about spy twins. And they, both these guys had been intercept operators for one of the wireless units collecting messages for Central Bureau. Mm. And I, I had no idea. And then I, I learned from this article that there was this, because I was kind of interested in Bletchley Park and stuff. I think all that stuff's really cool. And uh, I had no idea that a similar thing was going on in Australia. So I actually contacted the guy, what, one, of the, one of the twins was still alive, uh, Don Field, and I contacted him. Uh, he was in Melbourne. I went down to Melbourne and had a long chat with him, and uh, that was the start. And I just went around hunting down anybody who I could find who was still alive, who'd done signals intelligence or code breaking of any kind for Australia in the Second World War. And I went around Australia talking to them, meeting them. It was so amazing meeting these people and hear, hearing their stories and they were really encouraging of what I wanted to do. Now, you, you also, you spoke before about the number of women who served with these particular units and they were really groundbreaking in terms of the role that they played to the point where yeah. um, my understanding is that they, they couldn't be deployed overseas because of the Australian Army policy at the time. Yeah, I think the Australian Army had a limit of a small number of women could be deployed in operational zones, but that had been long since exceeded. It was exceeded by the time they got uh, by 1944. As I was saying earlier, MacArthur wanted Central Bureau to go wherever he went, and and it was really important too because they were supposed to be providing him with timely information. And when he moved to the Philippines, he said, "Okay, well, we need Central Bureau to go to the Philippines." So they said to the government, okay, look, we've got all these men and women in Brisbane uh, at the, the Central Bureau headquarters. We need to move them all to the Philippines. And the government said, no, you can't do that. They're women. We can't move them to an operational zone. So there was all this umming and ahhing, and they eventually said, look, don't, doesn't everybody love MacArthur? The government thinks MacArthur's the ant's pants. So they brought in him, and he personally intervened and said to the Australian government, I, I, these women are so important to me they're vital you must let you know uh, modify your rules and let them come with me to the philippines and the and the, and the australian cabinet met and said no nah, we're still not doing it mm. so they had to stay behind mm. so then they so central bureau they, they kind of made it work you know they sort of they split central bureau into a sort of a, a rear base office in brisbane state in brisbane and, and you know the forward um the forward office um, that went to the Philippines. Um, so, yeah, they played an important role. But yeah. I, I should... Can I come back to something else before yeah. we move on? Yeah. You see, I, I, I feel like I still haven't properly answered your your very first question, which is, or your second question, which is, how did Australian signals intelligence help win the Pacific War? So it's all great to talk about, you know, well, there were these guys and they were really smart and there were these, you know, from Crete and professors and everybody doing code-breaking, but how did it actually help? So I'll tell you, I'll give you a couple of examples. Please. One was uh, when essentially uh, we got to the point in about probably 43, uh, 44, where essentially the, the Allies occupied... In broad terms, the sort of southern coast of New Guinea, whereas the Japanese occupied the northern coast of New Guinea. 
and uh, you know there was a bit of uh, toing and froing around the, the, the you know the eastern tip, Milne Bay and uh, Finch Harbour and so forth. But what the uh, the plan was really to take out to take WeWAC, and and Central Bureau said essentially, look, they went to MacArthur and, and his people and said, look, we've been studying the signals, we've been studying the radio messages. This is how you, WeWAC's essentially a trap. You walk into there, it's going to be a bloodbath. And they were like, well, that's what you do. You take, you know, you, you invade the enemy's bases. The Central Bureau was able to say, well, according to our information, there's this little bay much, much further northwest called Hollandia. It's, it's very lightly defended. It's just being used as a staging post. If you took that, if you went there, there's, you could take it quite easily. And so it was, and so that's how this whole cartwheel strategy came about of looping around the Japanese bases and taking Hollandia and cutting them all off. Mm. And so this saved so many, so many lives because instead of taking the Japanese head on, they were just simply outmaneuvered. But that was only possible due to excellent tip-top intelligence coming from Central Bureau. That's what actually made it possible. And, and the same thing happened when... Um, uh, the uh, when they they needed a staging post, they needed an island uh, to go to um, uh, uh, to head further north to uh, when they were going to invade the Philippines. They were going to take out much larger islands, and Central Bureau said they're really well defended. Our estimates are there's the, the island of Moritai is very lightly defended, so they took out Moritai instead of instead of taking out um, the the much I think it was is it the celebs. And um, those bigger islands um, in the uh, in in the um, in Indonesia was now Indonesia. So essentially, um, Central Bureau actually saved lives, also Japanese lives, if you want to put it that way. That wasn't the intention by actually helping MacArthur go where the Japanese weren't and outmaneuvering them instead of taking them on head on. So that's a couple of ways that they helped. And what role did Central Bureau play? in the downing of the aircraft that carried Yamamoto? That's a very good question. So when I was writing the book, so the official story has always been that Yamamoto, it was all, it was all the Americans, it was the American, the American Navy codebreakers, you know, Fabian and the guy, his counterparts in Hawaii. Mm. But there has, there's sort of been this folklore in Australian signals intelligence, and particularly amongst the Central Bureau veterans themselves, that Australian, that Central Bureau played a role and Australian codebreakers and signals guys played a role. So I, I thought, I, I actually, I thought that sound could be right. So I investigated it pretty hard and I put together what I think happened in my chapter on, on, on the Yamamoto shootdown. So for... Just to back up a little bit for anybody who's listening who doesn't know about this, um, in 1943, April 1943, a squadron of American uh, American aircraft intercepted um, uh, P-38s, I think, uh, intercepted Admiral Yamamoto's plane who was heading down towards, um, uh, down past the east coast of... Um, New Guinea and shot him out of the sky and killed him. Now, Yamamoto was the head of the Japanese Navy. So that's a really, really big scalp. And uh, the story, the official story has always been that 
the, the I was talking about the high level Japanese Navy. The high because the in code is you don't break a code. Every any military apparatus has a lot of codes. So the the top level Japanese Navy code was called JN25. All right, it's just, just what we call what the Allies called it anyway. So supposedly, so the story was. JN25, the JN25 message went, was picked up in Hawaii, giving out Yamamoto's itinerary down through the, you know, the Solomon Islands and other places. And that's how they knew where it was. They intercepted it, they broke the code and sent out the planes. But <laughs> it's not quite that simple, actually. They did pick it up, but the JN25 code books had changed. So the guys in Hawaii couldn't actually read the message. They knew, they, they kind of had an idea that it was about Yamamoto, but the details were missing. But because Yamamoto was visiting, visiting this, uh, he was uh, visiting uh, uh, the commander on a very small island, uh, a low-level army commander uh, who was only using army codes, um, he didn't get the, couldn't get the itinerary. So they had to so the Japanese had to transmit the message in a different code to him. It was a code that Central Bureau understood. And a guy called Zero Falconer, who was one of our interceptors in the um, New Guinean jungle, he picked up the code, wrote it down, sent it down to Brisbane. And as soon as they re read it, they went, wow, this is important. And they passed it to their, their American counterparts. Mm. And the American and so the American counterparts were then able to pass it back to Hawaii and, ah, oh, ha, 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 this is, this is the missing part of the jigsaw. Yeah. Now we know what all this message says. So it was, Amer it was American, and also, to give the Americans full credit, they're the guys that put their necks on the line by flying out in planes to get it. So it's certainly not the case that Australia deserves full credit for this. Probably more than, the majority of the credit does belong to the Americans, but at least some of it belongs to Central Bureau and particularly Zero Falconer, who I had the absolute pleasure of meeting, um, in, who was living in Castlemaine in Victoria. He's passed away since uh, and spent um, the day chatting with him and his experience of the war. And he was the guy who intercepted the Yamamoto message. One of the characters in your book has led you to write a new book, which has just been released. Tell That's us right. About, yeah, please tell us about Mrs. Mac. Yes, yeah, sure. So this is an interesting one too, because uh, the Monterey Flats, where the Americans were working, as I said, they, they had a lot of Australian women helping them. They were Navy women because, you know, these were Navy guys. Fabian only wanted Navy women working for him, so even if they were Australian Navy. But these, where did these Navy women come from? Now, essentially, they were being, they, the first 14, the Navy women in Australia, uh, let, me, let, me, let me put it, put it back, put it this way. Why were there women in the Australian Navy and where were they coming from? These women were being trained in Morse code uh, in Sydney by a woman called Mrs. Mack. And the first time I heard about Mrs. Mack was when I was talking to a woman who worked in Monterey Flats. And she actually said, you know, you should write a whole book about Mrs. Mack. She's very interesting. So I eventually did because she is really interesting and deserves her own book. It's called Radio Girl. So the one we've been talking about, Secret Co-Breakers of Central Bureau, that was my book that came out in 2017, and now Radio Girl came out six weeks ago. So please check it out if you, you, know, if you like one, get the other. Um, but So what she did prior to the war, 
Violet McKenzie. She was Australia's first woman engineer, and she was like, oh, she was very pessimistic. There's going to be a war. She wasn't, you know, she, she thought the Chamberlain was a fool, and she thought, you know what, if there's a war, Australia doesn't actually have enough expertise in Morse code to get us through. So she started training women in Morse code. She just started doing it. She didn't ask for permission. She didn't get paid for it. She just rented a wool shed by Sydney Harbour in the rocks. She put an ad in the paper and said, ladies, if you want to learn the Morse code, come along. So she soon was training, you know, actually some high school girls, girl, women in their early 20s, office workers. They're all going there in their lunch breaks and evenings and learning Morse code. And eventually, she was right, Australia ran out of men who could do Morse code. So she went to the Navy. Well, first she went to the Air Force and she said, you know what, you're calling out in the papers for anybody who can know Morse code. I've trained hundreds of women up to the standards by the military. Do you want them? And they said, no, thank you. So then she went to the Navy and she went down to the Navy board in Melbourne and persuaded them to take her women. And they turned out to be amazing. They And, and she, she basically got them into the Navy. Anyway, so that's how... So it's a pretty extraordinary story about pushing against the sort of military establishment and really making something just something happen. So that was the Mrs. Max story. The book is called Radio Girl, and uh, what we'll do in a couple of months is that we'll circle back and, and come and talk to you again uh, for a podcast on her. But where can people go to uh, buy both books? Well, I, honestly, I think Booktopia seems to be the best place. I've been looking at it, and they always have plenty in stock. Uh, I noticed that Amazon. Uh, I, I'm not going to talk any any other sites. Talk about uh, other sites that I think are not doing as well, but um, uh, or doing you know stocking my book as well. But Booktopia seems to be have great deals and always have plenty of stock. So if you want if you want to buy it online, I, I think that's the simplest way to do it. Yeah. So the first book, The Secret Code Breakers of Central Bureau, your new book, which is Radio Girl, which is uh, available yep. also right now. And, and we'll come back to you in a couple of months and talk to you about that. Look, David, that's a fascinating, oh, great. fascinating insight into SIGINT and uh, Australia's role in World War II and the Pacific War. Look, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for talking to me. It's, it, yeah, it's been great to talk to you too, David. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links to the podcast on our Facebook page. We're keen to hear your feedback. Leave a comment on our Facebook page and one of the ways to promote this podcast is through your feedback. If you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcasting apps, please leave a review. You can also support us via Patreon. Your gracious support helps us with costs such as hosting and production of this podcast. Even as little as $1 can help. The link is www.patreon.com forward slash thanks for your service. Thanks for listening.